namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa bhutang tamang sankang namasami So this afternoon, we have this opportunity to reflect on the way it is. So I'd like to encourage everybody just to beware of the silence. In the temple, this particular building is, always has this kind of resonating silence, very clear. So you begin to notice the way it is before you start thinking or grasping any conditions or any ideas, views, opinions, material objects, sounds, taste, touch, and so forth. So we call it like it's awakening, waking up Buddha Puto, Buddha is, a, is awake, consciousness awake. It's not caught up in the delusions of thoughts, perceptions, opinions, and views. And today, just listening to the news of the worldly news on BBC, one is aware of how the conflict like in, that is happening in Ukraine right now is the result of not being silent but holding to particular views, political views, national views, which cause endless problems and getting to a point where it's it's getting into a, a real wartime mentality. And how does this all happen? You know, why do well-educated people in Europe in Russia, Ukraine, and the United States fight with each other. Why can't, the ideal is why can't we just get along with each other? You know, so that's an ideal, getting along. And, uh, and it's very right and true. You know, why can't we just get along and then, uh, of course, this is, this is words about what, how things should be. But with reflective awareness, we're not trying to attach to views about how things, every sh- how things should be, but the way they are, they're like this. So this, this mentality, this uh, kind of warlike, side-taking, 
uh, blaming, accusing t tendencies that we have, if we have no refuge from that kind of uh, habit, then of course it, it will be just one endless conflict after another. Because even in a sangha of like-minded Buddhist monks and nuns, and the conflicts arise over views and opinions. And in religion, one thing with all religions, one of the problems they have is righteousness. This sense of absolutizing righteousness. And um, because on a logical level, you know, like, we should all get along and learn to love each other, help each other, respect each other. Different nations of the world should learn how to work out their problems and and how to uh, promote uh, freedom and goodwill. And it's very right, and and we wish that would happen. But with with meditation, we're just observing the way things are, not the way they should be. So many of us were brought up with very idealistic conditioning. So, you know, in my own experience in monastic life, in med through meditation, just observing the righteousness that, that I was very much attached to on a personal level and in so many other ways. And, uh, and you know, I was, I was quite liberal in my attitudes, very democratic, wanted fairness and justice and freedom and all the best, uh, human rights, and only these kind of very liberal attitudes were part of my conditioning as a layperson. And they're very right views, they're right, but that's not the way life is. Life is not about being right, but, but about surviving, about procreating the species on this level of a human form. It's an animal's form, which is, we share the karma with all animals of having to survive and procreate the species. So, you know, one is always, as a human being, you're brought up to think you're superior to the other animal uh, realm that we witness and see, which we, we like or have opinions about. Because we, you know, we can look down on them because they walk on four legs or whatever, and, and they they don't reflect on the way things are, and yet humanity itself. How many of you reflect on the way things are, or just operate from what you think are right views, righteous opinions, concepts, beliefs, and so this is a question: ask yourself. You know, in your life here in England or in the Sangha here at Amravati, how much conflict we create through 
through our particular holding to views we have about how things should be, how someone else should be, or how oneself should be. So I've talked many times about the, the way, you know, how easily it is to create a perfect society by thinking. And so we can imagine political systems, ideal systems, where everything is fair and just and free, democratic, uh, where everybody is, is uh, developing metta, loving kindness towards all sentient beings. We can create the most beautiful images of perfection, of conditionality, but conditions their very nature is imperfect. You know, so no matter how much we spend our time creating ideals and, uh, and then feeling frustrated or annoyed or blaming others because they don't agree or don't fit into what we feel is absolutely right, and then we feel we have enemies or conflicts or problems, endless crises arise, which we worry about and we blame others for. So being right is, is uh, an impermanent position. And when we absolutize righteousness, making it kind of an ideal permanent position then and we cling to that view the absolute righteousness view you know then we find it very difficult to live in the world in society with another person to even relate marital relationships often are fraught with with righteous views that don't don't align with each other So the world, as the Buddha pointed out in his teachings, his Dhamma teachings, is all conditions are impermanent. So they can't be absolutized, they can't be fixed and stable. And so we we can see, you know, even in living here in, in the UK, uh, you know, it's a stable society well-run society. But it's not perfect. And we can imagine how it could, we could hold strong views about how to make, make the UK perfect. And those views might be very right. But that's not the way things are. And as you begin to really understand how to reflect on your state of mind, on your own clinging habits to views and opinions, you begin to see the suffering, that the, the sense of worry or fear or anxiety that's created through worrying about the state of the world, about the family relationships, about sangha practice, about religion, politics, or whatever, 
because there's always something threatening or unknown or seen as an enemy or as a problem in terms of conditioned phenomena. And so this reflecting, when we, when we reflect on suffering, the first noble truth, we're not analyzing it, we're not trying to think about it, but observing it. So in, you know, in reflective meditation practice, this is allowing panya or wisdom to operate in conscious awareness, where we begin to see that all conditions are impermanent. We see this because we are experiencing impermanence. That whatever we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, whatever we're thinking, whatever mood we might be in in the present moment, it, it, there's nothing stable about it. You can't depend on conditions for stability or safety. And that so much anxiety and psychological problems are based on the illusion that we find the, the perfect relationship, the perfect uh, political system, and uh, the per, you know this idea of imagining what how nice would how nice how wonderful life would be if everything was what it should be. And of course, that leads to cynicism. Later on, you got you take to drugs or drink or anything that's distracting yourself from from the way the world is escapes through seeing or hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, through thinking. So, who is the witness of suffering? Who is the one that is aware of th that thoughts arise and cease? What is it that's aware of the impermanence of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch? What is it that is aware here and now, when we talk about awareness, conscious awareness here and now, And you can't objectify it. It's the one thing you can't objectify. You can't see consciousness. You can't take it and show me consciousness. And yet everyone here knows they're conscious. So it's, it's immediate not knowledge that we, we're aware when asked if we're conscious. We are every one of us will say, yes, of course. But what does that mean? Is it holding to a righteous view, conscious that I'm right and, and that you don't agree with me? Is that, is that uh, wisdom? Or is that just holding to maybe a very refined opinion of how things should be? So the Buddha's teachings are all ways of learning to reflect on life, on the experience that we're all having in these separate forms. 
and then we, you know, we, no matter how much we try to refine the forms and obey all the rules, if we still don't reflect on the Four Noble Truths, we miss the point. You know, we might feel, you know, that we, we are a very good person and we, we're very moral and very pure-hearted, good-hearted, and we have a sense of appreciation for our virtuousness, our goodness. But that's still a view, isn't it, that I'm somehow very virtuous. Who is aware of that very thought? What is it at this moment that's aware that I'm thinking I'm very virtuous? And so then if I just cling to this basic idea about myself, <clears throat> then if someone says, well, I've seen things about Ajahn Sumato that I suspect, uh, or you know, we have doubts about things he's said or done in the past, and then, you know, then my position of being right all the time and virtuous is being challenged. So I feel threatened when I'm clinging to righteousness and even to a very uh, positive attitude about myself as a separate person. I can still feel very threatened by criticism by anyone who doesn't agree with me. So aware of this, being aware means that, that I don't get, you know, I don't have to suppress this feeling or, or uh, take a more humble position about myself or my position or, or, or get rid of righteousness, but begin to observe this attachment the, of right, being very attached, very clinging on to views about right and virtue and goodness and how things should be. And so when we see this, it's the clinging to these, these ideals or these virtuous concepts that is the cause of suffering. So even virtuous, righteous people that are very moral and very good citizens obey all the, the laws, pay all their taxes and so forth, even though that's very good in the worldly way, the identity with all that goodness is still the cause of suffering. So why do good people or virtuous people suffer if they're making all the right moves and doing everything in the right way according to our cultural conditioning, our religious conditioning. We've oftentimes wondered in, in life how virtuous people suffer so much. Shouldn't God kind of favor them and, you know, favor them so that they don't, that their very attachment to righteousness and goodness would prevent them from suffering? Or is it ignorance of Dhamma, the way things are? 
And so this is where the Buddha gets to the very source of the problem. His point, you know, pointing to avicca or ignorance of Dhamma. And Dhamma isn't, you can't define Dhamma. You can't find it as an object. So like in meditation, just trying to, you know, you can see consciousness operating through the senses, so there's, you know, consciousness that we use for seeing or hearing, smelling, testing, or thinking, the sensory consciousness, but that consciousness is, you know, tends to divide things, separate things, and in that kind of sensory realm, everything is divided into good and bad, birth and death, male and female, right and wrong. Everything that's created and conditioned has its, has its positive and its negative poles. So we're just by clinging to the positive side of the of the spectrum, you know, we still suffer. Suffering is not allayed. Maybe the the amount of suffering is decreased through righteousness, through goodness, through virtue. But the basic illusion that prevents us from total freedom and happiness is clinging to conditions that we believe in and we don't question. We, they might be very good, might be very pure, virtuous, and so forth. But that very clinging makes us also, uh, in many ways, very arrogant because we, we feel as a person we're more virtuous, more moral than somebody who drinks and carries on in life, uh, thwarting all the uh, laws and disobeying the authorities. So we tend to create this sense of, I'm better than you are, or, you know, that we see the those who don't cling to righteous virtues, we see them as sinners, we have various words for them, that, you know, that diminish them in all kinds of ways. So, this is the problem of language. Because when we think, when we're attached to our thoughts and our ideas, thoughts are created, you know, so they can't be trusted. So just like nationalism in this present day and age, you know, does, is England, does the land, this island here off the coast of Europe, does it, ha, does it, has it ever called itself England or has Scotland ever defined itself as Scotland? Or are these words created by human beings and defined and identified with? So we fight over boundaries national boundaries, such as uh, what is going on with Russia and the Ukraine. Because we have strong views about this belongs to us, or this is my country, or how things should be. 
But the land, the whole planet, doesn't belong to anybody. It's not a personal possession. So you might buy a beautiful home, and we think, and with a beautiful garden and acreage around it, uh, and think, this belongs to me, it's my home. And on a conventional level, that's how we think and how we uh, b believe in modern society. But land itself doesn't belong to anybody. And in the future, you know, it looks like there's all these problems of climate change where there's going to be immigration problems that we're well aware of here in the UK because people trying to find another place to live. And then our nationalism says, well, they, they don't belong here, they belong somewhere else. And so we, we can be very cold-hearted and mean-hearted and, and uh, very biased and create fear and prejudices about immigrants. And yet, you know, they, these, these righteous views about making America great again, or that America is the greatest country in the world. These are created by politicians. You know, their ideas, their, you know, they can be good ideas, like England is, is a good idea, Scotland is a good idea. Is Ukraine a good idea? You know, and according to the Russians, or to some Russians anyway, it's not a good idea. Because they have very strong views in which they're willing to wage war, kill a lot of people over just boundaries, national boundaries. And we don't seem to learn very well how to deal with this problem because the basic problem is not the, the conditioning, but the ignorance of the source of conscious awareness, not reflecting on the way things are, but being totally hypnotized, totally caught up in systems of belief. So believing is, is uh, one thing that is one of our problems. We, we believe what we're told about uh, in our nationalist views, our political views. We believe them oftentimes without question. Or our religious views. Those of you who have been brought up in any religion, you, you all witnessed how righteous various religious groups can be and how arrogant they can appear towards other forms, religious forms. So this is <clears throat> encourage, encouragement to reflect on the way it is, which is that conditions are, on their very nature is unstable. And what is a way, can a, an unstable condition this is another question to ask yourself. Can an unstable condition be aware of a, another unstable condition? You know, so what is it that's aware that is reflecting on the impermanence of a phenomenon? 
What is it that's here and now that's aware, fully conscious aware, that isn't conditioned by culture, by religion, by language, and that is conscious awareness, mindfulness. These are the words they use at this present time. So it's learning to trust in this awareness. So trust isn't about believing in it. You can't believe in something that you are. It's just beginning to wake up to what you really are. If you want an identity with words, you are that. You are the Dhamma. And that's impersonal because we all, Dhamma is, is not separative or not defined by any words or adjectives. Try to define Dhamma and find it. You can idealize it, believe in, in, the, in the word Dhamma. And this is a part of a, this particular Pali Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So it is a convention. So Dhamma is just another word that's available to us in this form that we use to to reflect, can you find Dhamma as an object? You know, can you find consciousness at this moment as an object? So it's like this kind of investigating the way things are. You can you can objectify space, you can perceive space. So when we do spatial meditations, you know, we're suddenly beginning to notice the space has no boundary. So it's, it's actually, we can actually point it out. I can point out to just the space in the temple or the, the temples in space or the sun, moon, and stars are in space. But consciousness seems so limited when we identify with it as some kind of personal condition. So then it makes me, this very vulnerable form, this human form, in relationship to a vast universe and space. And just this simple body, this old body sitting here in the temple, is in the same space that the sun, moon, and stars is in. But I've defined, if I am ignorant, then I define myself to the form, to this limited physical body, this, this aging form. And the result of that is suffering, clinging to the five khandhas, clinging to the forms, clinging to views, opinions, all forms, good and bad, right and wrong. So the cause of suffering is this clinging, attachment, or in Pali we use upatana. And we can witness upadana, we can witness clinging. Just notice in your, in your life when you're obsessed 
with, with your righteous view. And as you stand back from it, let go of the righteous view, it doesn't mean you get rid of it. But you stop clinging to views. And that's freedom. Being attached to righteousness is not liberation or freedom. It's another form of bondage, another cause of suffering. So when we look at the universe with our eyes, we can, you know, we can see the sun or the moon, the stars, the sky, the clouds. We can, we can perceive space. But what is it that perceives that you can't find? What is it that is beyond perception, that is not objectified in any way? You can't find it as an object, it is conscious awareness. Vinyanang anidasanang anantang sapato pabang, which is a, the Pali phrase about pure consciousness, not sensory, not the sensory experiences through the, through the body, through forms, but meaning invisible, endless, and being everywhere. So when we take refuge in, in awareness, then we're getting to the very source where ignorance ceases. And that's what the whole point of this, this kind of teaching is about, is to encourage you, because when you think about it, you know, when we read too much scriptural teachings and hear various opinions of various teachers or different Buddhists, it becomes, Buddhism becomes incredibly complicated. So knowing a lot about Buddhism is certainly something, even if you're going to know something, it's good to study Buddhism in its different forms. And then you'll find you prefer particular styles of Buddhism or teachers over, over another. But what is aware of that preference? Aware of that opinion? What is it that's aware of space? Can space see itself? Does it have a life all by itself? Space? And space is here and now. So I can point it out. But I can't point out consciousness. So instead of trying to find consciousness, because that's what we all are, pure consciousness, if you want an identity, here's one, pure consciousness, Dhamma. We take refuge in Dhamma. 
Then we have perspective on, on the creations that we have to experience through the senses, through the bodies, these physical bodies. We don't have perspective if we're just attached to one form uh, and reject another form. We're just trying to take sides and, and uh, in the process we create endless conflicts because the world is not perfect. It's not meant to be a stable abiding place that you can trust. Because its very nature is impermanence. And it's impersonal, where we, the, person, the personality view, the ego, is, is the major block, impediment, to this, to panya, to wisdom, to see things as they are. So in Dhamma Vichaya, which is uh, also encouraged, is to investigate. So there's sati, Dhamma Vichaya, factors of enlightenment. So it's, you know, it's very obvious that the whole point of the Buddhist teaching is about investigating experience that we have through these forms, through these physical forms, which are all different. You know, so in terms of karma, you know, in, in terms of consciousness, we're the same. We're one. The marvelous unity, perfection, is in conscious awareness. With all conditions, all, creature, all creatures. The squirrels running about my garden, the same consciousness as this consciousness. the magpies and the blackbirds and so forth, when we begin to sense this, this apparent marvelous unity, rather than just sorting out the forms and liking some and disliking others, or taking pride that we're, we're, we're really not mammals or animals, we're, we're special creations by God, that's another view, another opinion. When we stop doing that, stop believing in all the rubbish that we've been conditioned with, what's left? When you let go of conditioned phenomena, and letting go doesn't mean uh, destroying, it's not annihilation. It's kind of relaxing into pure conscious awareness here and now, which is freedom and available to us all. So the respect that, that I have for the Buddhist teaching, after all these years, most of my life I've been spent, I've spent as a Buddhist monk. It was an experiment. I wanted to experiment with my life. When I was in graduate school in 19... 63, 62, in Berkeley, I, I went, I had a, I took a seminar 
I was in uh, the Department of South Asian Studies and uh, I took a seminar on Gandhi and, the, uh, and it impressed me. Mahatma Gandhi was, well, is somebody I could relate to because I grew up when he was alive. You know, I remember seeing newsreels about Gandhi and he was kind of this eccentric Indian in a loincloth. But he also represented something that was quite fascinating. So in this seminar, I was uh, the, the professor, the lecturer was a, a woman who knew Gandhi personally and worked with the Gandhian movement in India for many years. And she was very much like a, a one who respected that particular movement. And then reading Gandhi's autobiography, it was called My Experiments with Truth. And at that time, you know, I was becoming increasingly more kind of stressed out when you're studying for your degrees at a university and you're under all this pressure to write theses and to, and to pass examinations. And then the whole lifestyle of that time in the early 60s in Berkeley in California was very much follow your heart, do whatever you want, no boundaries. So there was this sense of freedom to experiment with life. The drugs were beginning, be, becoming commonly used at, at, at that university at the time. And <clears throat> there was a lot of talk about uh, psychedelics and LSD and so forth. So it all sounded very, you know, in many ways, very much fascinating and interesting to be caught up in all this, this kind of freedom to follow your desires. And then the Gandhian autobiography, Gandhi's autobiography was my experiments with truth. And reading that autobiography, I was very much impressed. Like, here was one human being I could actually remember being alive at the same time that I'm alive, who was willing to use his life as an experiment. So he was dealing with the, uh, you know, the British colonial governments at that time in India and, and uh, with different, with Muslims, with Hindus, with different religions and his, his, uh, you know, learning to, to try to b build this sense of unity amongst all these diverse groups. India in, in society is very diverse. And then what to do about when you're still, still uh, under the influence of a colonial power? You know, so there was no hatred towards the British. You know, he was very anti, he was non-violent. There was a sense of love or of respect for all sentient beings. And this was my interpretation of the Gandhian philosophy was that, that Mahatma Gandhi was willing to experiment with his life. So it inspired me a year later to, uh, several years later, to experiment with my life. So ordaining 
as a Theravadan monk in Thailand in 1966, it wasn't that I was a, a, you know, a convinced Buddhist believer or anything, but I could, I realized just the kind of liberal freedom that I'd experienced in Berkeley was not liberating. It just made me more stressed and confused and, and a lot of self-aversion and, and uh, endless emotional problems arose from living like that. So I did, I did have this uh, interest in Buddhism. And so when I went to Thailand, I was determined to use this, this experience as a Buddhist monk as an experiment. And in that early year when I was a Samanera, I used uh, just uh, the Yanati Loka, a German bhikkhu scholar from Sri Lanka, who uh, condensed the Tripitaka into this Word of the Buddha, a book that I took with me on my meditations, because I didn't want to take the Tripitakas too much too much to read, and I wanted to just uh, see if the Four Noble Truths, if it was valid teaching, or what the point of it was. Because it, and to me it was enigmatic. Why would an enlightened master, the first desana he ever gives to his followers is about suffering. So it intrigued me. So this... Uh, you know, at this age, after all these years, my experiments with truth have yielded a sense of trust, complete trust and confidence in awareness here and now. And this is a result of, you know, of, of this kind of trust. It wasn't a belief like I believed everything that I was told or read in the scriptures. But to me, the Four Noble Truths was, you know, when the Buddha said to understand suffering, this was an experiment to just come to terms with my own stressful conditioning, the sense, my ego, my conceits, my fears, My, all my identities were, were, you know, was given this freedom to investigate, is this what I really am? Am I really a man? Because the body is male. Am I really an American? Is this, uh, you know, is this uh, an identity that I can trust? Am I really a Buddhist? You know, so this kind of self-investigation and questioning, am I really what I think, what I believe, what I've been told? And as you understand suffering, you begin to see this, this, these uh, hindrances in the habitual, unrecognized clinging, attachment, to just habit patterns that you develop in your life without questioning them or, or when you do, you might see them as bad habits. 
you know, so we can turn our, our negative mindset towards ourselves and see all kinds of faults, flaws, weaknesses in ourselves as a personality when we compare ourselves to ideals of how one should be as a man or woman. But no matter how hard you try to live up to standards of virtue and respect, if you don't understand suffering, it's still suffering, no matter how good and righteous your life might be or how wonderful it might appear because those conditions are impermanent. They're, they're not stable. And you, you begin to see just this, through understanding suffering, you begin to let go. So during that first year, as a Samanera, before I met Lung Po Cha, I had this insight into letting go. So when I ordained as a, fully ordained as a bhikkhu, I went to live with Lung Po Cha in Uborn, and he asked me what I'd been doing, and I told him my, my practice was letting go. And he said, keep doing that. But he said, at first you have to cling to the Vinaya. So he suddenly, I wanted to train myself with Vinaya to have a form, a kind of conventional form, that wasn't some idea I created out of modern views or opinions about the world or personal freedom or American ideas, ideas but a very conservative traditional form that was uh, still surviving as an experiment to see how, what would happen if I align myself, train myself in this form. And then with the Dhamma teaching, because Lung Po Cha always emphasized the Four Noble Truths and the many desanas I heard that he gave were very powerful reflections on just this basic teaching. So suffering then is, is, you know, it's not a doctrine. It's a noble truth. It's not a metaphysical doctrine. It's not a belief. So even the, after the Buddha's enlightenment, his first sermon was pointing to something that was so apparent, so banal, so ordinary, to understand it. And so, you know, in, in any life, in, in so many people's lives, there's so much to worry about, to be stressed about, to be guilty about. And that's all the cultural, social conditioning that we've received because we're conditioned to do that. We don't know what we're doing, so we tend to just operate out of the force of habit. Habits developed out of ignorance of Dhamma. So, avicca or ignorance of Dhamma The Four Noble Truths is a direct pointing 
to see what are the causes of, of suffering and the end of suffering. So then people ask me, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, do you still suffer after all these years? You've been a monk 55 years. Do you still suffer? And of course, that's a difficult question because suffering is the very nature of conditioned phenomena, which I still experience. But what is the difference? What the difference lies is in non-attachment to it. That's what I've learned, uh, insight through this, through this kind of me meditation practice. So, you know, you're aware of the suffering around you, of the in, inadequacies of so many conditions, and, and then your own habits, your aging body, your senses deteriorating, things like this. These are not like, you, you don't notice them. It isn't that you don't notice them, you're aware of old age, it's like this. Wonky vision is like this. And, and so you're, you're just noticing, allowing things to be what they are without attachment. If I attach to this body, then I probably suffer a lot. So I'm aware of suffering, of the aging, the problems the, 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 that old people have. But I don't attach to them because there's insight through these Four Noble Truths to do not attach to the world, to the conditions. It's not judging it in any way as good or bad, but just these simple teachings about impermanence. And then the Dhamma as a refuge is not self. Because pure awareness, the silence, behind all the conditions, behind all the things that we experience through the senses, it's unconditioned. You don't create silence. You can't create it. But you can be aware of it. So underneath all the wars, chaos, confusion, mental problems, personal problems, is a silence, resonating silence, in which you see the end of suffering, or suffering conditions that, unpleasant conditions that arise, you don't grasp, so you're aware they're still unpleasant, but you don't think of them as unpleasant anymore. They are what they are and then they cease. And so this, this proof of the truth of impermanence, of all conditioned phenomena being impermanent, impermanent, is not a belief, it's an insight into reality. So I offer this as a reflection.